the Arthropod. The Arthropod is the home for the wonderful, weird, wacky world of insects. Hosted by Jonathan Larson, Jody Green, and Michael Scavarla. Welcome back to Arthropod, your entomology podcast. I am one of your hosts for the day, Jonathan Larson of the University of Kentucky. I'm Jody Green from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. And I'm the third host today, Michael Scavarla with Penn State University. And we're wrapping up our January content with you here today. Very excited to be producing another episode with my friends Jody and Mike. How are you two doing? It's been a hot minute <laughs> since we've seen each other. Any fun things to report? Opposite of fun things? Yeah, no fun work things. It's just kind of all the same. It's slow because it's, you know, the middle of winter, not getting a whole lot of insect requests in. Um, I'm kind of loving that. This is like the first break I've had in a long time. So sometimes I just sit and think about cool things. And people are like, what are you doing? And I was like, I'm sitting like I'm actually sitting down and nobody's asking me a bug question because they're all dead. Like it's been super cold. So that's great. <laughs> On sunny days, I do get the brown marmorite stink bug and multicolored Asian lady beetle. But most of the time right now, it's pretty quiet. So I'm kind of catching up and doing other things. Riding some brainwaves, as it were. Yeah. Well, in extension, you can work on something all the time. Like there's not a time that you can't work if you wanted to, but I'm excited about April. Are you What's guys happening excited? in April? We're going to see each other in person. It's true. <laughs> uh, the arthropod crew will be uniting together in person at Purdue university. Uh, we should probably like figure out what we're going to talk about. We're supposed to give a talk while we're there ostensibly about being arthropod. So we'll have to work yeah. on that as a group. It's three uh, months from now. We got time. It is. Three would we now. would we be professors if we didn't like <laughs> not do this a week beforehand? I think you mean would we be extension professionals? I mean that too. <laughs> right. I mean we all went to Purdue, but people wouldn't really know that. I don't know if they haven't invited us back for a reason, but <laughs> Dr. Crystal Hans invited us. She sure Heck did. Yeah. We appreciate that. So we I'll should. have to break out the in-person equipment and we'll all sit around and we'll have like real mics in front of us and we'll be in the room physically together. Won't be like awkward Zoom pauses and everything. It'll be cool. It'll just be natural awkwardness and it's going to be awkward. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Pure organic USDA awkwardness provided by Arthropod. Yeah. So what are we, what, what's going on with you, Jonathan? What's going on with me? Uh, I'm trying to think of what my big cases have been. There's a recurring brown uh, recluse case now uh, sort of similar to what you've dealt with in the past jody um they're talking about doing a heat treatment so i'm excited to see how that goes for them but also slow partially slow because my work office has been destroyed so my department is completely displaced <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, yeah our building over the the hard freeze that came down in december uh there were multiple pipes that burst in ag science north at uk and so uh, us and a couple other departments are kind of like literally stuck in different drawers and things around the building. So it's it's been an interesting time, but uh, I get to work from home. So I, I'm kind of down with it. <laughs> I actually did think of something uh, oh. that's going on in my life. So I spent some money uh, of my research money and got $250 worth of pitcher plant seeds. 
Oh, I yeah. knew it. I was going to be about plants. Yeah. So I'm actually going to raise a, like 400 pitcher plants in my backyard with the eventual goal of like four to seven years from now doing an experiment with pitcher plant mosquitoes. Wow. So I got all these different crosses. Pitcher plant mosquitoes only live in purple pitcher plants. It's one species that we have here. But because all Saracenia, the seven to nine species readily hybridized, there's all these hybrids with different crosses. So I've got a gradient of purple pitcher plant genetics in all of these crosses from 100% down to like 8% or 12%. Okay. And so I'm going to grow the plants up and see how the mosquitoes respond to it. If there's if they're responding to genetics and maybe some kind of scent or if it's pitcher morphology or what's going on. But these things take like yeah, four to seven years to reach maturity before I can do anything with them. So this is like wow. the first really long term experiment I've ever done because I mean, you guys have been in a similar boat. You, get, you do your master's degree and you've got to be wrapped up in two years. You do a PhD, you got to be wrapped up in four to five. You do a postdoc, that's usually one to two. And even here, trying to like get promotion and tenure that first five years, like all of my projects should be fairly wrapped up so I can get promotion or tenure, whatever you're going for. So I've never had a chance to think about like, what, what if this project lasts 10 years? So that's been exciting. Very longitudinal. Yeah. It's a big commitment. I hope I don't kill them in the meantime. <laughs> that's yeah. what I would be worried about. Yeah, that would be my primal fear on that one. <laughs> Uh, I thought you were going to talk about the velvet worms. Oh, yeah, I got velvet worms. I guess that's another exciting development. So Anikafra, the velvet worms, have never really been available for purchase in the U.S. There's no native species and you can't really find them in the pet trade. I've looked for decades to find them. And people like in the U.K. and in Australia and all these other places worldwide have them, but nobody will ship here because, understandably, uh, right. because of quarantine issues. I found a guy on Twitter selling. Haitian browns, which is, don't recall if it's a described or an undescribed species, but they're, they've made it into the U.S. pet trade and are being bred captively. Yeah, I managed to pick some up. They were $100 a worm. So, like, in, stupidly expensive. So, I've never spent so much on an animal, like, that could just die if you look at it wrong. Um, <laughs> and I've been keeping them. And I started with four, and one died within a couple weeks, mysteriously. So, all of a sudden, I had three. And I'm like, oh, no. I've only got two adults and one immature. Like the chances of not having a male and a female is about 50 50 uh, with the adults. Like, what if these things die off and don't start reproducing? Like, I'm done. That's a, that was a waste of money. But late last week, I found there's a little baby in there. So at least one of them is reproducing. So I'm, I'm building up my, my teaching colony of, of velvet worms now. Can you just do like a brief what is a velvet worm? Yeah. So the group is Onycophora. They are the sister group to arthropods. Yeah, but like, what do they? What do they live in? Like, how are you keeping them? Oh, they live in this little container. Okay. For the, the listeners that can't see it, it is just a bunch of damp sphagnum moss on a piece of damp paper towel, and I change the paper towel out once every week or two because it gets moldy, and that's it. I I toss in baby hisser cockroaches a couple times a week for them to feed on. The velvet worms are communal, so like if I pick through the moss they'll be like hanging out together and they like will collectively take down the cockroach nymphs so that's cool okay so they're predatory yes they're predators um they require high humidity because their skin is thin and so they desiccate very easily 
hence like the closed container with a bunch of sphagnum moss, but that's really also good for fungal development, which can kill them. So you got to swap out the medium before it gets too moldy. Are they like hermaphrodites that need to mate? I think I, hmm. I that was an interesting question, wasn't it? Well, I should look this up before I talk out of my butt. I think <laughs> An they're appropriate male. euphemism for today. It will be. Uh, I think they're male and female, but if I recall correctly, the mating habits of most species, including this species, even though it's in captivity, aren't known. Like, even mm-hmm. though this is a captive species, nobody's observed them mating. So it might just be we don't know. I But I don't recall offhand. Okay, that's exciting. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah. You want to talk about butts? <laughs> talk about well did we got a mailbag or something right heck, heck of a transition there mike uh, your transition came on point yes i always <laughs> want to talk about butts. <laughs> who we doesn't got, love butts we did get a, a mailbag question it was not posed in such a manner uh as it was not quite worded that way uh it was prompted by a question that we received from a listener uh they didn't want to share their name so dear arthropod Uh, I'm a pest control operator. I like to tune into your show occasionally. You've mentioned before you're willing to take questions. Last night, my daughter was asking what bugs I had seen that day. That sounds like a cute uh, end of the day kind of share and tell about what kind of insects you were killing. And then they followed it up with the question, how do bugs eat? I can tell her the basics, but I realized I am kind of ignorant to just how bugs do eat. Would that be something that you could help explain? Boy, howdy. Could it be something that we could help explain? Uh, we have a combined, what, 70 years of experience in entomology. So, yeah, I th- we can cover some basic entomological concepts, right? Are we really that old collectively? <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> Man, I guess we're, uh, collectively we should just retire then. <laughs> Ooh, I like that policy. Uh, socialism in action. Uh, <laughs> I'm, you, I'm sorry. <laughs> what, what question? What pops into your head when you you hear somebody asking about insect digestion? Well, I was wondering how how old the the daughter was. Um, we but, don't seem to have that info in the. But is it about question. digestion or is it about eating? Is it about finding food or is it about like actually like ingesting the food? So this it's, is me questioning the question. But when I. <laughs> What pops into my head is that I love watching arthropods eat. Like, I just love it. That's why I have laundry room arthropods, right? Like, I love watching them eat. But also, I think it's fascinating and boring. Is that weird? But because, like, I love watching them eat, but it takes forever. So I put, like, an iPad with time lapse on it, and then I come back and see them eat. But I love watching them eat. That's a pretty cool thing. to do. That's a neat hobby. But the simplest thing is they eat with their mouth. The end. Uh, yeah, thanks for tuning in. Uh, <laughs> and there you go. <laughs> what do you this. like? What What would you guys say? <laughs> what pops into your head with insect digestion, Mike? Not so much with digestion, but if you if you ask the question, "How do bugs eat?" the first thing I immediately think about is just the plethora of mouth parts and how that's weird. Because you've got like chewing mouth parts and piercing, sucking mouth parts, and, and lapping mouth parts, and mouth parts that do every which kind of thing within insects, and it's all derived from the same set of basic appendages yeah all these things becoming stylets multiple times across the insect tree of life and it's really cool because if you look at like mammal mouth parts like mammals and vertebrates do weird things right but you've still basically got the same like jaws with teeth yep like you can modify the teeth a little bit you can modify the jaws a little bit but it's head and 
shoulders above with insects, like how they're just modifying in the ways that they're modifying their mouths to eat different things. So I think that's cool. Well, let's start there then. We'll talk more about mouth parts. Uh, I think one important distinction to talk about with arthropods is that when we're, we talk about them as a group, that there are arthropods like insects, which have mandibles, which are the mouth parts that Mike is alluding to. And then uh, we have the other arthropods that have chelicera. Mike, as our resident arachnologist, could you walk the folks through what chelicera are? Or chelicerate arthropods and mandibulate arthropods. Chelicery and mandibles is the one of the big distinctions within arthropods. And so I think we've talked about it on the show in the past, uh, but arthropods, they have different body segments with jointed appendages on them. So if you think about like the earliest arthropod ancestor, you could imagine like just a segmented wormy thing that has an appendage on every segment with just an oral opening. It's kind of like Onychophora, the velvet worms that I was talking about that I have their mouth is just this opening that they kind of put stuff into. When you get to arthropods with these jointed body segments, keep saying jointed body segments. Body segmentation. Thank you. Thank you. Body segmentation. Those jointed appendages get modified in different ways. Sometimes for walking, you think about walking legs. Sometimes for mating, think about things at the backside of the insect with different mating claspers and, and ovipositors and things. But at the head, a bunch of those appendages get modified into feeding appendages. So if you look at kind of a a schematic of the different segments of an arthropod head, in chelicerates, the first segmented appendage are the chelicery. They're the feeding organs. And a chelicera is a a jointed appendage, and it has kind of a, a pincher in most chelicerates. And what that is, is the terminal segment is kind of the tip of the one claw. And the next segment back has this extension that is the tip of the other claw. And so when the ultimate and penultimate segments move against each other, you get a pincher, like a crab pincher. The next segment back are the pedipalps. And these are most obvious in scorpions because they're also pincher-like. So the big pinchers on scorpions are the pedipalps. Uh, and if you look at the head of a scorpion way down, they've got these little, much smaller chelicerae that look fairly similar. And they're these little pincher bits that tear food apart. In spiders, the pedipalps aren't pincher-like, they're leg-like. So they just look like a little tiny set of legs at the front of the body, even though they're not legs. And in some male spiders, those pedipalps are modified for mating. And then after the pedipalps, you've got four sets of legs. So to review with chelicerates, first segment is the pincher-like chelicery that they use to tear apart food goes into the oral cavity that you've got pedipalps, legs, and legs. In insects and hexapods more generally, it's different. That first appendage on insects is modified into the antennae, uh, not a chelicery. So you could think about it like chelicerates are kind of leading with their mouth because they're leading with the appendages that are ripping food apart, uh, while insects and hexapods are leading with their antennae, which are sensing organs. More uh, peaceful in the hexapod. Well, I don't want to say that. Kind of <laughs> I know. You don't like anthropomorphizing. Yeah. Anthropomorphizing. But it does help me keep straight, like, which is which. Right. Uh, in crustaceans, after the first set of antennae, you have a second set of antennae. That second set of antennae has been lost in insects. So you've kind of got this blank segment in insects. And then after that, you've got the mandibles, the maxillae, and the labium, which are different segmented appendages that together form this set of mouth parts. 
So in insects, you've got multiple body segments coming together to form the mouth parts, while in chelicerates, you've just got one, which are these pincer-like appendages. So um, when you say pincer-like, I'm thinking of horseshoe crabs, I'm thinking of, of, all, of scorpions, but when we talk about the ticks and the mites, is there some further sort of diversification with the chelicera? Yeah, so within chelicerates, there's not a whole lot you can do with chelicerae because it's just one appendage on one body segment. But what a lot of chelicerates have done, things like spiders, multiple groups of mites, some other things, is that they've lost the like thumb-like part on the chelicerae. So instead of having a pincher, you lose that thumb bit and now you've just got a fang. So it's just segments that are ending in a pointy bit. And that's happened multiple times because it's really easy to modify pinchers into fang. And it's happened multiple times across chelicerates. Uh, but that's really kind of all you can do with it, which is part of the reason chelicerate mouthparts are not nearly as diverse as insect mouthparts. With insects, when you've got multiple body segments coming together to form these mouthparts, you could do lots of different things by modifying one or multiple of those appendages. So when they're eating... They're either sort of snipping their food up with scissor-like objects, or they're kind of like juicing it with opposing forces. Is that right? Yeah, they'll use the fangs to like suck the juices out, um, or with the if they've got pincher-like chelicerae, they'll either tear it apart and put whole pieces of food in their mouth, or tear it apart, masticate it, and then suck the juices out of the lump. And it's important to point out that there is a hole, right? Like there's a hole that they're manipulating this. Yeah, there's an oral opening that the food they they manipulated to go into. (laughs) But those are the chelicerates. Those are your pals, uh, you as a mite taxonomist and everything. Yep. Uh, We had the question was specifically about insects. Jody, did you want to talk about those pieces of the insect mouth that Mike just sort of alluded to? So there are the basic building blocks of what we call the mouth parts. And when you get into entomology, like we always talk about mouth. But when we talk about insects, we think about these mouth parts because there are certain ones and they're kind of put together. They've been adapted throughout the time. And it's really hard to talk about it without seeing visual. So we could probably put some charts and diagrams, illustrations we'll, in the show notes. We'll have some beefy show notes for this one. You'll you'll get to see lots of cool pictures if you go to our blog. Cool. So when I visualize mouth part, like I always think about the chewing mouth part first. And when I think about a chewing mouth part, I guess I think about the grasshopper. And I know that we've just done like three episodes of grasshopper. So (laughs) about that. And when I think about the chewing mouth part, I think about the damage that it can make or the evidence or signs. So, you know, if you think about like a grasshopper and you think about leaf or vegetation, you think about them chewing. So like ripping holes in plant material, ragged edges. And so these appendages that make up the grasshopper mouth part or any other insect mouth part. So the first one is the labrum and there's one, and that is usually kind of, can, can be referred to like as the insects upper lip. Then there's a pair of mandibles. And so Mike talked about Jaws, these are in insects, they're going to be a pair. So two of them, they're hard and they're powerful cutting jaws and they go like side to side. Um, And then there's a pair of maxillae, which are pinchers and they're less powerful. They're used to steady and manipulate the food. So there are insects that you can see them chewing and kind of making a bolus or like a lump of food and moving it around. 
Then there's one labium, which is the lower cover or the lower lip. So labrum, upper lip, labium, lower lip. And then there's the hypopharynx. And we kind of refer to this as like the tongue-like structure of the insect. Sometimes you'll see that in a, a bee. Um, and then there's salivary glands that can discharge saliva through that. So that can help digest food on the outside of its body. So those are the five main appendages. So if you ever see some of the charts that you will, will see in the show notes, they're still present in all the insects, but they're really modified. So you're like, you know, that's what it looks like in a chewing insect mouth. But then you'll be like, oh, and this is what labium looks like in this insect. So it can be very different, but those are essentially the parts. And when I think about chewing mouth buds, other than grasshoppers, if you want to think about um, predators like praying mantises or like lady beetles, lacewings, dragonflies, those also have chewing mouth parts. And then in terms of herbivores, um, that eat plants like blister beetles. They have chewing mouth parts, flea beetles, hornworm caterpillars. Um, <laughs> so that's how they get the food into their body. I appreciate what you were talking about with the symptoms that they create. There can be some diagnostic power behind insect chewing marks that they leave behind on plants, uh, particularly when you talk about like skeletonization on leaves, or if you get total den denuding of leaves, or if they eat it down to the midrib. And then the flea beetles are famous for making that shot hole damage. So the chewing mouth parts, while perhaps not the most extravagant of the examples we'll discuss today, are very important, very utilitarian. I do like it when we get to talk about how mouth parts get adapted over time. Uh, some of them that have more specialized diets, you can see some changes. All those pieces are still present, as Jody said. But uh, I would say like maybe the closest to the chewing would be the chewing lapping mouths. Um, which I know is being most famous for appearing on honeybees. Honeybee, if you think about it, they're well known for having sort of a, a diet that's diversified. They have solids and liquids that they want to consume. So bees have chewing teeth, chewing mandibles still that they're able to use to chew up pollen. Uh, I believe they use it for other tasks in the hive as well, but that's one of the main reasons. And then the mouths also have uh, the labium has been heavily adapted over time to form sort of a long tongue-like object. So they kind of like uh, combine together like a, a Megazord and Power Rangers and, and they've smooshed together and they create this long tongue that they're able to insert into nectar and to honey and then lap it up with those mouth parts. I think that they're cool. Uh, I like when you oh, there used to be a statue head thing of it at Purdue where you could kind of see it in action. I don't know if you guys remember those big diagram or models, I should say, that they had there. Um, that was one of my favorite ones to play with was the chewing lapping one. But there are others that are even more heavily adapted, right, Jody? Yeah. So we just talked about mandibulate, and then there's also the chewing mouth part. Then there's also ones that we just I guess call the sucking mouth parts. So they're used to suck. They're called hostilate. So hostor means to suck. Mm. Um, and that's how they get the food in their body, right? They they suck it up. So when we want to think about those type of modifications, we're thinking about insects that have sponging mouth parts, piercing sucking mouth parts, siphoning mouth parts, and then do they call it rasping dash sucking? So there's Ooh. also rasping. So that one's also that one's always kind of confused me because we don't talk about it too much, but we can we talk, don't. You're right. We can have a discussion about rasping mouth parts. Because sometimes, like when we think about piercing, it has to also have hyphen sucking because it 
if we think about a mosquito, right. it pierces the skin and then it sucks the food out, right? So piercing, sucking mouth part. And you talked about the, the type of mouth part determines how this insect will feed. And in cases of pests, which you we were talking about, like what kind of damage it, it does. And so a lot of times, like I guess in, in our job, since we do a lot of investigative problem solving on what, what did this, there's a lot of things that we're like, well, that's impossible. It doesn't have that kind of mouth part. It couldn't have done that kind of damage. This thing doesn't have a mouth part that could have bit you because that's not what it does. These hostelette mouth parts, they've been modified or I don't know, what do the kids call it? Leveling up so that they could feed on different things and have a more diverse diet. With the sucking mouth parts, it's more adapted to like a liquefied diet, but those building blocks or those five parts they're very similar relative to each other. They're going to be in the same parts, just different form and function. And then I also want to say that there are some adult insects that do not have functional mouth parts and do not feed. So that's kind of like a fun fact. Um, do you guys know any of these? Uh, the the Saturnids, many of them have non-functional mouths, right? Yeah. Like why? I, I would say they're, they're just here to make they're just looking for love in all the right places <laughs> right they don't have they don't time need, to, to they don't need to nectar eat. do mayflies they don't need either do they? they don't need either so is it because they don't have functional mouth parts or is it just like they don't eat no no yeah why invest in morphological structures you're not going to need yeah that's cool so that's just adaptations and the coolness of of insects but I would like to have a discussion. I don't want to just keep talking about all the mouth parts, but okay. let's talk about some of the ones that I mentioned and maybe some of the insects that we could think of that have those. And also we want to note that not the same insect may have a different type of mouth part at different stages of its life. So with insects that go through complete metamorphosis, so the egg larvae, um, pupa adult, the larvae and the adult may have completely different mouth parts because they're going to be eating and living in different places. So similar um, something that's like a, a caterpillar that turns into a butterfly or moth will have a chewing mouth part as an immature. And as an adult, it has this siphoning mouth part. So siphoning mouth parts, anyone want to talk about that? Famous on moths and butterflies, uh, basically a, a big crazy straw that they curl up under their head and they can unfurl it and dip it down into flowers in order to suck up nectar. So it is an all liquid diet, similar to the piercing sucking ones we'll talk about here in a moment. I think the key difference is that over time, they've lost their mandible rather than retain it while the mandible is still important in the piercing sucking world. And then we call that a proboscis. 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 <laughs> Sponging mouth part. So the sponging mouth parts are, these are typically found in flies, but it should be noted like flies do all kinds of weird things too. Cause you've got mosquitoes that have piercing sucking mouth parts, horse flies that'll have like kind of chopped, like, like they, they slice your skin up and, and lap up the pooled blood, but sponging mouth parts are typically going to be found in certain kinds of flies. And it's just the mouth parts have been modified to have this big fleshy end that they put down in liquid and then lap it up, you know, from there. Uh, there's lots of good videos of like house flies feeding on a little drop of liquid or something online. 
uh, that really show this off quite well. They do the digestive salivary juices from like dog poop onto your food and then have to like mop it up with their sponging mouth parts. So gross and fascinating at the same time. It is so gross and fascinating. Uh, definitely don't want flies on your sandwich because they, yeah, they're, they're putting enzymes in places you don't want them and they've touched things that you don't want on your food as well. <laughs> yeah. I always say like entomologists will eat a lot of things, maybe like pick the bug out of like the beer bugs or whatever we used to call them out of our beer. But there's a lot of things that like, I would be like, nope, flies on that. Let's <laughs> put that over there. Um, and that's kind of the greediest group, right? Mouth part wise, don't they have the most diversity of mouth parts? <laughs> Yeah, typically, because, yeah, they've got sponging mouth parts, piercing, sucking mouth parts. Stabbing, slurping. Stabbing, <laughs> slurping. But the neat thing, too, is if you think about piercing, sucking mouth parts, the, the mandibles and the labium uh, and all the bits are modified into these stylets, these long, thin pieces of mouth part that, when combined together, form like a, a tube or a straw. And you would think, if you modify your mouth parts into these piercing, sucking mouth parts, that you couldn't go back. Like... Now everything in these long slender tubes, like you can't then remodify that. Uh, but certain groups have. So there's multiple groups of flies that have turned those ancestrally piercing sucking mouth parts and kind of broken the pieces back up again and like remade mandibulate mouth parts from them. Wow. Um, yeah. And, and it, they don't really look anything like mandibulate arthropods because they've kind of gone piercing sucking and then come back. Right. <laughs> um, uh, Corixids, the water boatmen, which are hemipterans, have done the same thing. A lot of hemipterans have piercing, sucking mouth parts, but Corixids ancestrally have that and then have remodified them into these organs that can manipulate solid foods. So it's really cool to see this like going, this transition to and then back from piercing, sucking. The other neat thing about piercing, sucking mouth parts is all the different lineages have done it differently. They're taking different parts of the mouths in modifying them in different ways to get this tube that can then suck up liquid. I thought it was, I don't know if I thought it was dumb at the time, but it, it felt juvenile, I guess, in our intro to entomology class uh, as undergraduates, Dr. Aceto handed out coloring pages uh -huh. uh, with the different mouth parts on them and how they're modified. And you could see like, these are all the stylets and these are the mandibles and across coloring pages, you had the like, color in the mandibles all the same color and the labium all the same color it's like why am i coloring with crayons in college this is dumb but then you look at the sheets when you're done and it's oh i can really see how these are the same structure across different mouth part types and so that really drove it home as an undergrad how how nifty this can be just how adapted this had been yeah i have them as pdfs maybe that should be in our show notes that sounds yeah, like a good show notes. i bet we could post those so it's not just with orders or groups, it's, it, it can be different. So like we do recognize like true bugs as having the piercing sucking mouth part. Yes. Unless they modified it back to something else, <laughs> like with, with water boatmen. <laughs> Sorry to go back to the siphoning mouth parts of moths and butterflies. Even there, you've got differences. So the most basal lineages of Lepidoptera are the mandibulate moths. They're moths that still have mandibles that did not evolve into the siphoning mouth parts that kind of occurred higher up in the Lepidoptera tree of life. But then even within moths that have these siphoning mouth parts, you know, most moths are just siphoning up liquid that is available in the form of nectar or whatever. But then you've got certain groups that have modified the tips of their siphoning mouth parts to be able to pierce into fruit, typically the, the fruit piercer moths. But some of them have then taken that and 
evolved to feed on blood. So they've modified the tips of these siphoning mouthparts into a piercing structure then. Yeah. They call them piercing siphoning or something in the I future. I guess. But yeah, like even within groups, like they're doing crazy things mm -hmm. uh, with their mouths. I want to point out that when we talk, we often sort of speak in these broad brushes because it's a complicated subject already. So we're trying to like usher us through the the basic concepts here. But there's always this radiation and, and specialization and insects for everything that you say, oh, yes, Hermiptera has piercing sucking mouth parts. It's like, well, actually, uh, ding, 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 this, 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 and this don't. Or there's no always in entomology, I don't feel like. Is that right, Mike? Yeah, there's no always, even within other groups. So you think about beetles, which typically have chewing mouth parts. Almost all beetles have chewing mouth parts. There's a couple of groups that have evolved siphoning or, or piercing sucking mouth parts like other groups of insects. You think about millipedes. Almost all millipedes have chewing mandibulate mouth parts, but there's a couple that have evolved these really long structures that are for liquid feeding. So yeah, just about everything you can think of has some exception somewhere. <laughs> so we do have to talk in these broad brushstrokes, but just know like, yeah, everything, it's, there's something doing something weird somewhere that breaks these rules. Entomology, there's always an exception to mm -hmm. the rule. I mean, when you've got yeah. a million plus species, it's easy to do that. It's very easy to do that. We're still in the mouth, though, folks. Like, we're just, we've only been talking about the mouth. This food hasn't even traversed into the digestive tract. But this is probably the main question that we were getting. Would you agree? Like, how do insects eat? They eat with these cool mouths that are very different. There's like the PBS deep look, how a mosquito uses six needles to suck your blood. It is so cool to watch those like the stylets in the chief and like it's it's just neat like insect mouth parts you could just talk about forever yeah you really could and i'm ultimately they're trying to eat and we could we could have spun this into like host finding behaviors and then recognition of food uh because insects have these cool processes like jody's alluding to mosquitoes they're able to to detect you from a, a great distance away with their antenna and then orient towards you and then recognize you as a food source as they get closer. But this, I, I took our, our outline at least in a slightly different direction. Uh, we're going to talk about what happens after they get the food. So now they've, they've bitten something, they've slurped something up, they've rasped and then sucked something. Many, many actions. That Wait, time do. out. Oh. What is rasping? Is that? So rasping sucking is a weird mouth part that I don't think gets talked about a lot because it's associated most heavily with the thrips. Mike maybe can talk about this too. I don't know if he knows about some of it. Like it's not fully, to me, it doesn't seem nailed down like what mouth they used to have or like which parts make up which piece, but like they're supposedly they're, they rasp. So they like sand. Paper. Yeah. Like they scrape the top of the leaf and then they're able to take this stylet like object and slurp up what comes out of there. It creates unique damage. There's this silver flecking on leaves and petals when thrips feed, it doesn't look like true sucking damage. It doesn't look like true chewing damage because it's, it's a little bit of both. Is it true that thrips are not symmetrical then? Technically, their mouth isn't symmetrical. Yeah. Okay. Yes. And I can never, they've only got one side of the mandible. Yeah. And I'm not saying which one it is because I can never keep straight if it's the left or the right. And I have to look it up every time, but they've only got one, one side of the mandible. Uh, they right. are asymmetrical, which is weird. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Because we like to say, oh, all arthropods are bilaterally symmetrical. And then 
some Weisenheimer, usually named Dr. Scavarla, says, uh, well, actually, <laughs> well, actually. trips are symmetrical. Uh, <laughs> I hope you don't mind me calling you a Weisenheimer, Mike. I don't. In thrips, the right mandible is reduced. So they have the left mandible. In some groups, that right mandible is even completely absent. Whoa, right mandible reduced. So thrips the- also have bizarre eyes. They do. Bubbly. So, so they use that left mandible to cut into the food, inject saliva, and then use maxillary stylets, uh, which form this tube. So they've the maxillary stylets only are forming this sucking mouth part uh, and then suck up the juices with that. What about the thrips that bite people? Are they doing that with their left mandible too? Uh, they're they probably just like- doing that with the stylet. Yeah, you're getting a little bit of both. You're getting rasped and sucked. Like, <laughs> and, and we should say too, within thrips, there are certain species of thrips that feed on full unbroken fungal spores. And so I think I have to double check, but I think what they're doing is sucking up those fungal spores through their maxillary stylet. So they've got like big stylets that are picking up what's basically a whole piece of food. And then you can actually look at the inside of them and they'll have like empty pieces of uh, fungal spores in there because they've digested the insides out, but they can't break down the outside. So that's kind of cool. Too chitinous or something. Yeah. So they're doing like weird, even there, they're doing weird stuff because most thrips are feeding on liquid, except for this one lineage that is then evolved to feed on solid food. Just another reason to not trust thrips. Who would have known? (laughs) Mike has alluded to some digestion here. So I guess that's how we'll round this one out is by talking about where the food goes after it passes through the mouth part. I'll lead us off by talking about the fact that insects have a complete digestive tract. This is something that I remember learning also from Dr. Rossetto about the fact that they have a separate mouth and anus. We also have a complete digestive tract, a fact for which I am eternally thankful that I don't have one hole for both of those things. This is in comparison with things that have an incomplete digestive tract, uh, most famous with things like starfish, where the, the opening that it is there, it's used for both the mouth and the anus. Uh, so insects have two separate holes for these two processes, one to get the food in and then one to get what's left out. When the food is ingested, it goes into the foregut of the insect. So we go through the mouth, uh, we enter an area called the pharynx. Uh, in people, we also have pharynxes. This is part of respiration and digestion with us. It, it's where your wind or your food gets separated, hopefully. Uh, Here it serves as sort of the precursor to the esophagus. And so through peristalsis, this kind of like pulsating action in the foregut, the food will move from the pharynx into the esophagus where it will further travel into the crop. And the crop is a storage-like area for food, kind of a staging area. Uh, I do a lot of grasshopper dissections. Did you guys do grasshopper dissections at Purdue, at Insectaganza or anything? Uh, I didn't with you. Yeah, in class, maybe. I love doing grasshopper dissections. Uh, I've led them with lots of middle schoolers in Omaha, Nebraska, actually. And then I make it a part of the package I offer to Master Gardener training as well uh, here in Kentucky. I just did one a couple weeks ago, uh, and it was about 20 Master Gardeners, and they were just over the moon. Uh, 19 of them were. One of them was about to, (laughs) to leave when I broke out the grasshopper bucket. But these are Eastern lubber grasshoppers. And one of the first things that people notice when they get into the grasshopper, when we bisect it, we get the head off and all the legs, and then we cut down the top and bottom, and we kind of peel it apart like a banana. The first thing that most of the the learners notice is the crop. 
It is this noticeably different colored balloon-like object in the thoracic area of the insect. And then a lot of them, the other thing they notice is they'll slice it open and inside of there will be leaf bits, kind of the grasshopper's last meal. So that's what the crop is famous for is kind of being this staging area for food to get passed along further into the digestive tract. Other times insects at this juncture, they would grind their food up with something called a proventriculus. It's a muscled area. It contains denticles, so little teeth-like objects. And the food will go from the crop and pass through the proventriculus, getting kind of further ground up beyond even what the mandibles did in the mouth, and then uh, pass it into the next part of the digestive tract. So it could be comparable to a gizzard in birds. Definitely not exactly the same. Uh, There's no stones in it like you see in gizzards of birds. Mike, do you give your birds gizzards stones? Uh, The chickens, yeah. I I actually give them granite and ground up shells for grit because they they needed to grind up their food. Yeah, Uh, that's premium stuff there. You're taking good care of those chickens. I try. I try. try. They they have a pretty decent life. (laughs) Up to a point. Uh, Uh, At this point, the foregut that I'm talking about, it's really just sort of like get the food in, maybe process it a little bit further. From there, I'm going to pass the baton off to Mike to talk about the midgut. To set up the midgut, I want to back up to the the foregut just a minute and the hindgut, because both the foregut and the hindgut are lined in chitin. Chitin, yeah. And so their hindgut is a thin chitin, so it can absorb liquids and things, but really the chitin is there. You can think of it as like the exoskeleton on the outside of the insect. And this is an invagination of that exoskeleton. So it's the exoskeleton on the inside of the insect. And it's lined in this chitin to protect the, the gut from damage. The problem is you can't really absorb well through chitin. And so when you get from the chitinous foregut into the midgut, there is, it's not chitiny there. So it's there, it doesn't have that. So it still has to protect itself especially in chewing insects where you've got like big chunks of food still coming in. And so insects secrete what's called a paratrophic membrane and it's developed different ways in different groups. Um, Specifically flies, they excrete it and it's a continual secretion of new paratrophic membrane. Um, In other groups, it's a bit of the the midgut that is kind of separated away and it forms this tube inside the tube of the midgut. So if you can picture it as concentric tubes, And the the paratrophic membrane protects the rest of the midgut, the cells of the midgut from damage because it it keeps all the food in there. The rest of the midgut excretes digestive enzymes and they go into the paratrophic membrane, break it down that food. And then the nutrients can flow out of the paratrophic membrane into the rest of the midgut and then either get broken down further. There's things called gastric seeky, which are just these blind pockets that extend off the midgut and help with digestion. They give it more surface area to digest, but it's in the outside of this paratrophic membrane, but inside the midgut where digestion and then nutrient absorption takes place. The paratrophic membrane is typically or can be absent in things like fluid feeders. So blood feeding and sap feeding insects, because since they're feeding on liquids, they don't need to protect that right, uh, right. kind of cells of the midgut from damage. I should also say here that the, the paratrophic membrane uh, is important in pest control because it's what's being damaged when things like beetles and flies are feeding on BT materials. The BT is breaking down that paratrophic membrane. And so that midgut can get damaged by food and that's what kills them. Uh, so it, point. it's really important to know this kind of things for things like pest control. 
Uh, and so that's the midgut, basically. Uh, it's where all the food digestion and, and absorption takes place. Ooh, the one last thing I want to say about the midgut is in certain fluid feeders, and thinking things like hemipterans in particular, the hindgut kind of wraps around and touches the midgut. So there's these large areas where you've got contact between the different parts of the gut. And uh, this is how hemipterans, especially sap feeders, get rid of a lot of the water. So you've got in the hindgut, which Jody will talk about in a minute, lots of stuff, but not a lot of water. And so when it's in contact with the midgut, just via, uh, oh no, the word's escaping me. When water flows from an area of high concentrations of water to an area Osmosis? Yes! Through osmotic action, because of these large contact between the midgut and the hindgut, they suck out a lot of that water so they can just shunt it out. And then it makes digestion more efficient in the rest of the midgut. So in different groups of insects, you know, we're, we're kind of talking through the basics of the gut here. Different insects are doing all kinds of weird things, modifying the gut in different ways to do what they need to do. So that's the midgut. We'll pass it on to Jody to talk about the hindgut where the poop is made. <laughs> First, I want to say thank you for allowing me to take you on a tour through the hindgut. <laughs> <laughs> of course, we're excited um, to uh, be our Miss Frizzle for the for the. I, <laughs> okay, so I I have a lot of joy talking about butts and and poop and <laughs> grass, if you want to call it fecal pellets, fecal matter scat. I just love it. It's fine. We are now in the glorious end of digestion. Jonathan talked about the foregut. Mike talked about the midgut. I'm talking about the hindgut. It's also called the proctodium. Procto. Procto so they would also have proctologists, right? Right. Exactly. Proctologist, a, a surgeon or is a doctor who diagnoses and treats disorders of the, the rectum and the anus and the GI tract. Have you guys talked to your kids about anuses and rectums and things like that? Whenever Boy. I talk about this stuff, <laughs> what no, a question! So, no, not well. I think because when I'm talking about this, I actually do think about my daughter because she was raised around bugs. All of these things were always talked about: pooping, right. eating, and things like that. So we've talked about this, and I can't stop thinking about teaching someone about these body parts for the first time. So yeah. <laughs> anyway. You'll have to forgive all of our childish giggling. <laughs> I know, I, but it's it's super fun. And but today we call it in humans colorectal. And as a side note, PSA, you know, it's, it's very important, very important health wise. Good check in humans. Okay, so back to uh, insect hindguts. So after one traverses the pyloric valve, there are also these like long thin tubes in the digestive tract. And when you do dissect a grasshopper, which I would highly recommend now that we've talked about it as being this great experience, you will see these malpigian tubules. Do you guys know why that it's called that? Because it seems really weird. I do know, but I want you to say. Because it's named after somebody, Marcelo Malpigi. Malpigi? Malpigi. Do you say Malpigian or Malpigian? I say Malpigian, I think, now that I'm thinking about it. But is yeah, his name Mar a, is that a hard Mar G? Marcello Malpighi. Italian listeners, tell us how to pronounce that last name. Yeah, well, I'd, anyway, I'd, I'd say his name Malpighi, but Malpighi and tubules because English is weird and we just change things. 
I mean, he's pretty cool if this malpigian tubules, these things that are so, so important to digestion is named after him. He was a 17th century scientist known as the founder of microscopical anatomy, histology, and the father of physiology and embryology. That's quite the business card. And he has this really important organ named after him. So what does this organ do? So these are excretory organs. They function sort of like bug kidneys. So like our kidneys, they, you know, they, they're going to remove nitrogenous waste from the hemolymph and the hemolymph is insect blood. That's just kind of in the cavity. So these malpigian tubules, they're long tubular structures, and there can be like two to more than a hundred. So it depends on the insect body, but it functions to reabsorb water, salts, nutrients from the feces and the urine of, of the insects. The ammonium ions, they're toxic. So they're converted to urea and then the uric acid through chemical reactions in the malpigian tubules. They'll convert and then you will get some semi-solid thing that empties in the hindgut. It turns out to be like a fecal pellet. So the urea, the pee goes with the poop is what you're saying. Yep. Together. So, I could see Mike grinding over there. The oversimplification. I was just thinking like like in birds, uh, yes. which have a cloaca and just put the pee and the poop together. Like the dark and the light. Yes. <laughs> so there's the ileum, the colon, and the rectum. And all these areas, as the food goes through, is going to be reabsorbing waters, the sugars, salt, as with the insect abdomen, it's all about homeostasis and, and making sure that the there's equilibrium in there. So it's going to reabsorb all the, the nutrients. Then there's a ring of rectal pads that are modified to reabsorb more nutrients and amino acids, water, all that stuff. Before I wish, the, I wish people could see the pure joy on your face. <laughs> <laughs> before the poop pops out of the anus. And again... It's called brass, and so we will always talk about brass. Do either of you know the history of that? Like, why do we use brass in entomology? I don't know it. I don't know either. Okay, so as far as I know, I should probably double check this. Uh, but as far as I know, brass originally and still refers to the wood bits that are pushed out by wood boring insects. So, like the wood shavings, that's brass. For some reason. That then kind of got pushed over, and now we refer to frass as just all kind of insect excrement, or at least hard insect excrement. You think a caterpillar frass is like little hard balls and stuff. And I've never seen a good explanation of why we took a perfectly good word that was just for wood boring insects, and we're like, oh, let's call all poop frass. I, I think maybe it's just we didn't want to keep saying excrement and poop over again, so we came up with a funny word. Yeah, we got our own special little word. That's interesting. We'll have to look more into that. I wanted to talk about notable frass though. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, so I have all, can I do like a top three, maybe? Top three poos? My top three insect frass. Okay. I love tomato and tobacco hornworm frass, little green, like grenade-like things. So They're perfect. the best. Absolutely. So Drywood termite frass. That was giving right? And that actually one. is pooped out. And it's hard and they're hard pellets and they're six-sided. It's so distinct, so amazing I, that an insect, soft-bodied insect anus can make such a structure. I like them because it's diagnostic too. So uh, cool. within the first three months of me starting here, we don't have drywood termites in Pennsylvania. So it, I don't really see them. 
But within the first three months of starting here, I got a client that was like, I brought this desk up from Florida and now there's these little, this dust in it. And I looked at it, I was like, this is, I don't even need to see a termite. It's so distinct that these are drywood termites, like get that yeah. thing frozen or fumigated. Um, Isn't that it's, a- it's really cool that you could just ID <laughs> them by the frass. Okay. My third one, tortoise beetle larvae frass that they use as like fecal shields. Amazing. So gross. That is wet poop. So that like, I don't know, they need more reabsorption, but they're eating plants and they're, they're like larvae, but they keep laughing. <laughs> Do you, have you not seen it? It's amazing. I'm, I'm laughing because you were basically like criticizing their colon and saying like, get get on it. <laughs> you got, you got sloppy poos, like get that water out of there. But it's perfect because nobody wants to touch them. Nobody wants to eat them because they're so poopy. So like, I just looked at them, took videos and pictures from afar, but I didn't mess with them because there's like poop everywhere. Okay, those are my top three. <laughs> oh, that was amazing. Mike, do you yes. have any others that you like? <laughs> no, she she took my drywood termites. I yeah. think that's, that's my good, that's my go-to is at least an extension. And mine is definitely the grenade of the hornworms. So uh we did it, right? Like we've we've traversed the entire digestive tract. That's how insects eat. They chew things up with very interesting mouth parts. We covered uh, some of the diversification that can happen there and maybe involves less chewing. We have the foregut, the midgut, and the hindgut where all of the digestion occurs. Any last words on the topic of digestion? I've said it a bunch through the show, but like this is really the basics of it. And everything modifies all of these bits. Like insects are just all over the place with the mouth parts. That holds true when you get to the, the gut as well. Like depending on what they're feeding on, different insects are are modifying or losing different parts of the gut. They're doing different things and they're moving all the bits in all the different places. It's really diverse when you really start to look at details across groups. Some have like symbionts and microorganisms in their gut to help them break yeah. down cellulose and the things that they're eating. Yeah. I, we didn't even talk about it really, but aphids have a special pouch that they keep symbiotic bacteria in these bacteria, um, these Buchnera bacteria, and they're highly specialized. So they've developed this entire organ that other insects don't have just for their symbionts. That's cool. It is cool. Insect digestion is cool. Insects eating is cool. Uh, We hope that you will all go and watch a video about insects eating after this, maybe. Is that a good experience to cap off learning about the digestive tract with? Fascinating and boring at the same time. There's beauty in the mundane. That's what Jody, I think, is is going. <laughs> so that's that. Uh, let us know what other buggy topics you might like us to cover. Maybe the opportunity to dive into some basic entomology stuff that we we know and love, uh, but could maybe appear more interesting to people who aren't in our science. So let us know if there's anything that you want to know about. I will say apologies to our next podcast guest, uh, Dr. Angeli Sego of Car- is it Carnegie Mellon, Mike? How do you pronounce it? Carnegie. It's Carnegie Museum of Natural History. It's not uh, Carnegie, which is the New York deli. It's Carnegie in Pittsburgh. There we go. That's the distinction I wanted with your Pittsburghese. Uh, But she's getting let in by uh, the hindgut, basically. So (laughs) maybe she won't listen to this one. We hope that you'll find the show online. We're arthro-pod.blogspot.com. We're on Twitter, arthro underscore pod show. You can find us on all of your favorite podcatcher apps, uh, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Podcast Attic. Uh, Always type in arthro-pod. That way you can find us there. Uh, We would love it if you left us a rating and a review 
It helps people to find the show, helps them to know what they're getting into. Uh, they can't all be so full of poop, but uh, we do like to think that they're all this full of educational content. So thanks for tuning in. If you want to find me online, I'm at Bugman John. I'm at Jody Bugsme, you and Al. And I'm at Emma 36 And we'll catch you next time here on Arthropod. It's time for our insect heroes to put away their nets and pheromone traps. Join us next time. Same bug time, same bug channel. As the Arthropod gang make the world safe from poor insect podcasts. Until then, keep on bugging.